Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Yeah, no, 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 I, I understand. I agree. It's just we have to be careful. Uh, I need to go. Can we talk about this later? Great. Yeah, I love you too. Bye. You know, I, I almost feel the need for the younger people around to explain what that is. This is a phone booth. You ever heard of them before? Huh? A phone booth. You know, before they invented the cell phone, these, this was our mobile phone right here. And they were all over on street corners everywhere. And the phone booth is a lost part of our culture. You know, one of the things that made the phone booth great, though, and if the young people do know the phone booth, this may be why you know it, But Superman used these babies, didn't he, right? So interesting. Clark Kent would just be walking around doing life when suddenly he'd see some disaster, some crisis, some criminal doing something or a disaster that needed rescue. And rather than running to the problem, he would always run to the phone booth, look around, and he'd jump in, and he'd, you know, it would shake a little bit. And then he'd pop out, dun, dun, la, la. he was transformed into Superman, ready with the strength to save the day. And so what is the phone booth to Clark Kent? The phone booth is a closet of communication and transformation. Do you see where I'm going here? Yeah, we're in a series on prayer called Pray Like Jesus. And we're going to study a particular type of prayer that I want to call Gethsemane prayer, or if you prefer, phone booth prayer, but it's prayer in a crisis. It's when there's a problem, when there's a major issue that is freaking us out. You know what we do in those crises? We run to the closet of communication and transformation. The communication is with God. It is prayer. The transformation is what he does in us as we talk to him. And we're going to learn about how Jesus did that. This is the final week in this series called Pray Like Jesus. And we've been studying both what Jesus taught about prayer and his example. This is an example week where Jesus shows us a phone booth prayer, a prayer in a crisis. And the crisis is the one that this week we celebrate, and that is the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The crisis occurred because Jesus had entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. This is Palm Sunday. And Jesus was like a powder keg of contention, just 
Jerusalem was ready to explode and Christ was the cause of all of the tension. Half the people loved him. He had followers who adored him. In fact, as he entered the city on Palm Sunday, he did so as like a rock star. People gave him a huge celebration, pomp and circumstance. It was like how a king enters the city. That's the glory Jesus received by his followers as he came into town. And yet on the other side, there was a group, a big group that despised him, wanted him dead. In fact, that very week, that holy week, Jesus had confronted the religious leaders in bold fashion. He had gone to the temple and he had stood up and he had announced these religious leaders, pointed to them, and he said, they're scoundrels. They're snakes. They're blind guides. They're blind fools. He said, and they're hypocrites. They're like a tomb that looks so great on the outside, but on the inside it's just filled with rotting death. And Jesus called them out. And man, were they upset. On that same week, Jesus had gone into the temple and taken the tables of the money changers and tipped them over and drove out those crooks with a, with a whip, saying, you've turned my father's house into a den of thieves. And as a result, the opposition was just fuming. And they had agreed, we got to kill this guy. We need to come up with a plan to get him dead. And that plan was underway. And Jesus knew it. Jesus was keenly aware of the complexity of suffering he was about to face. The crisis was at hand. And where did Jesus run? To the phone booth the place of communication and transformation. Let's study it together, shall we? The passage is a a beautiful one. It's found in Matthew chapter 26. If you're inclined to read along, you'll find it in the Bibles in uh, the seat back, all of you at 95th and those of you at Bolingbrook on page 996, shall we? Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. I should tell you about Gethsemane. Gethsemane is a, it's an uh, olive grove on the Mount of Olives. I've been there a number of times. And Jesus would go there regularly. This was his prayer closet, if you will. It's where every day when he was in Jerusalem, he would go to pray. Well, on this particular night, though, this is the night before his crucifixion, The pressure is at an all-time high, and the prayer at this place of prayer is a unique prayer in many ways. So let's read about it. It says, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Guys, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. So if you'll imagine... Some of the disciples journey with them to Gethsemane, but they're told to stay here and pray. Three of them, Peter, James, and John, go further into the bush, into the sacred secrecy, if you will, and they follow him in deeper. And Jesus prayed. Jesus modeled for the disciples and for us how much he valued prayer. Our Savior was a man of prayer. He's God, you know, God in human flesh. And if he needed to pray, how desperately should you and I be people of prayer? Are you, like Jesus, a person of prayer? Man, I hope so. So Jesus goes deep in and he prays. 
take a look at verse 37. Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to the three, guys, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Do you see some very disturbing vocabulary here? Let me highlight those words. Look at this. Jesus began to be sorrowful as he begins to pray, as he begins to think about his circumstances. At first, it's not a good turn. He began to be sorrowful. The first emotional bent was one into greater anguish. Sometimes that happens. We begin to pray and we start thinking about our problem and we're like, oh. the freak out factor begins to rise within. And that's what's happening to Jesus here. We're seeing Christ's humility. Some of you are bothered by Jesus freaking out. We're seeing the humility of Jesus, or the humanity of Jesus Christ on display. Yes, Jesus is God, but he is also has become a man. And his capacity to relate to our own suffering is found in his humanity, and he's, he's feeling it. You know what it's like to be sorrowful, to be sad, down, discouraged, depressed? Jesus knows what that's like too. Troubled. His stomach is in knots as he considers what lies before him. And he is just oh, deeply troubled. Can you relate? He's overwhelmed. The word overwhelmed means too much for me. I can't handle this. Ever feel that way? Jesus looked in his humanity at the trial that was before him and said, it's too much. That's why he's in the phone booth. He needs a strength that's not his own. Sorrow to the point of death. Wow. Jesus essentially is saying, the intensity of my anguish is so bad, I think it's going to kill me. Jesus sweat, other gospels say, like great drops of blood. I mean, he is just, in his darkest moment. Some may say, why is Jesus freaking out so? Is it just the physical suffering that is causing him so much anguish? Well, yeah, the anticipation of the physical suffering is immense. I mean, if you knew that you're about to be beat and whipped and tortured to the point that the torture will eventually kill you, yeah, yeah, that's something to freak out about. But more than that, it's not just the physical suffering and the pain. Jesus was anticipating with clarity, or at least a measure of clarity, the spiritual suffering. He was about to have the sin of all humanity infused into his being. One of the things that we know about Christ is that he was sinless. And so Jesus has lived his whole life without ever tasting guilt or shame. And yet he knows he's about to endure it all. Your sin and mine was miraculously by God the Father somehow removed from us and infused into his being. And Jesus knew that the sin and the guilt of the whole world is about to be brought down on his shoulders. In addition to the physical pain and the sin he's about to endure, there's the hell he is going to have to go through. I call it hell because hell is a place without God. And Jesus was going to have to endure that place 
without God. What I mean by that is on the cross, some scholars debate as to whether or not Christ actually went to hell during the three days he was in the grave. I don't know. I know this. On the cross, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was enduring for the first time in his life a separation from God the Father, the essence of hell. And so Jesus, as he's praying, is thinking through all about he's about to endure. He goes, it's too much for me. I am overwhelmed. Let's read on. Going a little farther, <clears throat> verse 39, Jesus fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. This is not a dignified prayer, all right? This is a fall with your face in the mud and cry out, no, God, don't make me do this. You know, the phrase, this cup may be taken from me, uh, the cup, the cup was how ancients would refer to a set of circumstances we might be forced to endure. To drink the cup means to endure the circumstance or the suffering. And Jesus is looking at the cup of pain and of sin and of hell. And he's like, I don't want to drink it. And he's so vulnerable. He says, Father, is there another way? Please tell me there's another way. Some of you might be bothered, like, well, come on, Jesus, you know, just, you know, really, were you trying to get out of it? You know, rather than be discouraged, know this. Jesus is modeling for us gut-wrenching honesty. One of the keys to a good Gethsemane prayer is just say, it. don't act all prim and proper, you know. Oh, dear Lord, if I must drink of the cup, I'll, yeah. Jesus is just getting real, and so should we. Don't try to impress the Lord with your correct statements. Show the Lord where you're really at. And if you're in anguish, weep and cry and say, God, I don't want to drink it. The Lord can handle the honesty. It's one of the great, you know, Gethsemane prayer is just so deep connection with God. In fact, I would state it this way. Your suffering, your problems are an opportunity for raw connection with God at a very unusually deep level. In Psalm 34, verse 18, God says, I am close to the brokenhearted. In other words, our brokenness is an opportunity for us to be closer to God maybe than we ever are. And so say, Lord, I'm going to just seek your face at a deep level. I'm going to pour out my heart. I don't want to drink it. And you'll connect with the Lord in a very special way, as did Jesus. Now, can we talk about the cup of suffering? Just for a moment. If Jesus had the drink of that cup, might we not have to as well? Sometimes people mistakenly view Christ, the Christian life as a walk in the park and say, trust Jesus and everything will go swimmingly for you. For them, they think that the, the, the cup that Christians drink looks like this. They say, ah, oh, yes, to be a Christian is a glorious thing. You know, it's smooth and shiny and beautiful and enjoyable. Uh, no, 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 no. Heaven might be like this. But we're not in heaven now. We are in a broken, fallen planet. 
And Jesus often calls us to paths of suffering. Sometimes obedience to him is to step into a difficult situation and give yourself as his servant in that situation. And it's hard. And so know that this is not the Christian life. It's glorious, but it's not shiny and easy. Often the glory of the Christian life is seen through enduring difficult circumstances. And if we're going to be able to drink the cup, we better get in the closet of prayer. Because it's in that Gethsemane prayer that we find the strength to endure the cup. All right. So let, let, me, let me speak for a moment uh, on what happens next. Jesus is praying about the cup and asking, is there any way out of it? He goes back to check on his disciples. You know what they're doing? Are they in deep prayer? No, they're in deep sleep. They are out cold. And Christ wakes them up and says, guys, this is, this is going to be hard you got to pray with me. And they're like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, we'll pray, we'll pray. And then Jesus goes to pray a second time, verse 42. He went away a second time and prayed, My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, then may your will be done. Still talking about the cup. But his talk about the cup has shifted. In the first part of his prayer, it was, Lord, is there any way to take this cup away? Any way I don't have to go through this? As his prayer has progressed, now it's, it's shifting to a place of resolve. Lord, if I've got to drink the cup, I'll do it. It seems that as Jesus prays, clarity regarding the necessity of suffering is being gained. Earlier on, he was entertaining the possibility, maybe I can, there can be another way. Later into the prayer, he's not there anymore. He's saying, all right, if this is needed, your will be done. I will do it. What's happening? One of the things that happens in Gethsemane prayer is that we gain clarity on the direction that God's calling us to walk. In fact, I want to put that word down here, direction. One of the things that we will gain when we just say, God, I don't want to do this. If it is, in fact, God's will that we walk through this hardship, he, by his spirit, will give us that conviction that, yes, this is what I'm calling you to do. That's so important because if if you feel like God is saying, I'm asking you to walk through this difficult time, we can do about anything if we know it's what God's calling us to do. If it's his direction for us, that will mean a ton. Let me give you an example. I'm going to share with you a little bit of what Jen and I endured uh, back 10 years ago when our son Jake was born. Uh, I've been praying about this and really feel that maybe a good way to show what this Gethsemane prayer thing looks like in real life is to let you into our journey because it was terrifying. I got the call. Your son is born, come see him in Grand Rapids. That sounds like a great call. It was not a great call. I didn't view him as my son. You see, this was all a shock. Jake was born two and a half months prematurely. And as a result, Jen and I thought we had lots of time to pray about the potential of adopting this boy who will someday be born. We had met the birth mom once. We thought we were in a real open place of consideration. 
she had taken our visit to be, you're the one, and I know you want to adopt him, and all of a sudden he's born. And so Jen and I were like, what do you mean our son is born? We haven't decided to adopt this kid. Well, we got our daughters into the car, and we drove like crazy real fast to Grand Rapids, went into the hospital, and were terrified at what we saw. Jake had a severely oxygen-deprived birth. The, the, they struggled to get the equipment into his lungs. And as a result, Jake just looked like a mess. I thought he was going to die. I mean, machines were puffing him up with air. His body was so little and shriveled. The doctor comes up to, to me and he's like, So you're his father. And I'm like, uh, not really, actually. I go, let me explain. We're, we're potential adoptive parents, but there's been a misunderstanding, and we're not sure we really want to do this. And the doctors gathered with Jen and I and said, let us explain something to you so you know what you're deciding. This little boy had a severe oxygen-deprived birth, and the level of brain damage is un able to be determined at this point, but it could be profoundly severe. And one doctor actually said, if you've not committed to adopting this kid, I suggest you get in your car, turn around, head back to Chicago and pretend this never happened. Jen and I rented a a hotel room and our brains were just swirling. We had woken up that day. It was a glorious morning. Everything in the Griffin household was perfect. And suddenly everything had changed. I remember going into this hotel room and Jen and I knew. We we turned on the TV. Thank God for TVs. And we told our girls, sit here and watch TV as long as you have to. And then we (laughs) we went into the bathroom of that hotel room. Jen and I shut the bathroom door and we both sat on the bathtub edge. And that bathroom became our phone booth. It became our prayer closet, our Gethsemane. And I looked at her, she was white as a ghost, I was white as a ghost, and we said, let's pray. Grabbed her hand and just bawled. God, what's going on? What is happening? Is this a view? We just got ourselves caught up in a tornado we were not planning on. Lord, what is going on? And we just poured out our heart to him in prayer and prayed and prayed and prayed. And as we prayed, this was the clarity we got. It wasn't much, but it was, don't go back to Chicago. Stay another night in Grand Rapids in this hotel. And the next day, we prayed in that bathroom again and got the same clarity. Stay another day and stay another day. And the more we prayed, the more clarity we got. We had no idea how it was going to turn out. But we felt God say, walk with me in this potential adoption opportunity. And we said, all right, Lord, if you're telling us to walk, we'll walk one day at a time. Sometimes, let me warn you, if you're thinking, oh, so you say if I go pray, all of a sudden everything I need to do will become crystal clear. Sometimes, mostly no, mostly the Lord will give you just enough direction for the next leg of the journey. And for us, that was one day, walk one more day in this potential direction. But that clarity was all we needed with God meeting us in that bathroom and saying, look at me. I'm in this. Walk with me one more day in this. Okay, Lord, if you're calling me to walk that one more day, I'll walk 
that one more day. Direction is precious when you're in a crisis. There's something else I want to highlight in this verse, and that's this last line here. May your will be done. That's huge, just so you know. That's huge, because that is a demonstration of faith. Christ is saying, my desire is not to have to drink that cup. But what I want and what I think is best, Jesus says, doesn't matter right now. Father, you are the one with the infinite knowledge of the situation. So your will be done. I trust you with my life, Jesus is saying. And folks, let's put faith down here because faith is another thing we receive in that Gethsemane prayer. When you are crying out to the Lord, one of the things he enables you to do is trust him, to put faith in him. A lot of times, the, the, that Gethsemane prayer, you will sense God grabbing you like a, a father does a son and say, you've got to trust me. You ever done that to your kid? You've got to trust me. I know what I'm doing. And God the Father will do that to us in those times and say, do you trust me? And he will enable us to find faith, to trust him in that moment. So interesting, when Jen and I went through that with Jake, it did not get more certain. It got more uncertain. Let me just describe to you the uncertainty. First of all, Jake's very survival was in question. His health was waning rather than improving in those early days. Secondly, the birth mother showed signs of wavering in her decision to give Jacob up for adoption. Uh, in adoption world, we call that a change of heart. And that is when the child's born and the bonding starts and the birth mom says, I'm not going to go forward with it. And so we were like, uh, maybe the birth mom doesn't even go forward with it. To make things even more uncertain, the birth father wanted to parent, but he was a very dangerous man and trouble with the law. And so he went to court and there was a trial to determine his fitness to parent. And we're like, oh my goodness. So we had no idea what was going to happen. And yet in the prayer closet, man, in that season, Jen and I prayed more than we have ever prayed in our lives. And I felt, Jen felt God say, you have no idea. God says, I see with perfect clarity how this is all going to turn out. Do you trust me? Preacher, I felt God say to me. (laughs) You are always preaching, trust the Lord. You don't need to know, just trust in him. Well, preacher, it's easy to say. How about you do? And I'm like, wow, Lord. But in that bathroom, sitting on that bathtub, Jen and I said, God, we trust Ironically, our faith grew with every day by a miracle of God's work in our heart and meeting in him, with him in prayer. We were growing like, I have no idea how this is going to turn out. But the Lord is sovereign and he is in control. And he knows and he loves and he can be trusted. Faith, your will be done, Lord, not mine, is a gift we find in Gethsemane prayer. Now, if you allow me, now I want to flip to a parallel account in the Gospel of Luke. 
And I want to show you what Luke says about the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke 22, verse 43, just one verse. It says this, An angel from heaven appeared to Jesus and strengthened him as he prayed. Isn't that fascinating? Folks, God the Father saw God the Son in this moment of need, in this moment of desperate reliance on the Father through prayer, and God the Father chose to honor the the Son with an infusion of strength through an angelic deliverer. And I'm not promising that we're going to see an angel. Maybe we will have the benefit of an angel unseen, But this I can promise because Scripture says God will do it. And that is that he will strengthen us. In fact, let's put the word strength. One of the benefits of Gethsemane prayer is that when we are weak, then we are strong. When in our weakness we turn to the Lord and cry out to him, a miracle, just like in the phone booth, Clark Kent becomes Superman. So we are infused with a strength that is not our own. The scriptures talk, Jesus talked about power from on high entering our being. And folks, that happens. And we find, I talk to so many people and I'll ask them, how did you make it through that? And they're like, I don't know. God gave me a strength I didn't have. When Christ says, I am overwhelmed, he was right. In his own human weakness, it was too much. But with the strength he got from the Father through that angelic deliverer, he found a strength necessary to face the trial at hand. Folks, strength into you. Jen and I look back. For us, again, it was two and a half months we drank that cup, if you will. And the odd thing about it is it got better with every day. You would think that we would have been worn down living out of a hotel for two and a half months, going through this great uncertainty. Not so. The worst day was the first day. And every day through that season of intense prayer, our strength grew. We stood a little taller People would say, how are you doing? Believe it or not, we're doing all right. Doing a lot better than we were doing. That was the miracle of the the infusion of strength God promises those who seek him. Now, let me be clear. If you don't seek him in prayer, if you think I don't need him, I'm going to face this on my own, well, you're going to face it on your own. But those who have the wisdom and the humility to cling to him in prayer will find the strength infusion to be sufficient to what faces the day. Isn't that incredible? So, what happens? Jesus has gone to the Garden of Gethsemane. He has cried out to the Father. He has found direction. He has found faith. He has found strength. And when... It's time. Let me uh, read to you verse 45. That's so interesting. Christ returns to the disciples, finds them sleeping again, wakes them up, sees Judas. Remember, Judas was one of his disciples that betrayed him. Judas said uh, to the religious officials, will you pay me if I show you where he is and direct you to him? In fact, I'll kiss him to let you know which of the men it is you're looking for. And they said, yeah. Jesus looks up and he sees Judas and the the Roman guards and the Jewish leaders coming. Verse 45. Look, Jesus says. Hey guys, look. The hour has come. 
the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, gentlemen. Let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Is this the same whimpering Jesus who was overwhelmed and saying, I can't do it, I can't do it. No, he has emerged like Superman from the phone booth. And he is saying, rise, let's do this thing. And he is a picture of strength and resolve. Where did he get it? In there. The the transformation that we see in Jesus Christ through his Gethsemane prayer is startling. And as you know, Christ, with unbelievable resolve and strength, goes on and endures for our salvation the most unthinkable suffering through his crucifixion. And how did he find the strength to do it? In prayer. And we will too. People will say, how are you? I mean, the strength, the resolve. I mean, I feel like I'm witnessing Superman or Superwoman. And what was she called? Supergirl? Whatever. Uh, the point is that you will find a transformation in communication in the prayer closet. And so I pray you do. Pray you do. Jenna and I did. I, how did it all end up? Valentine's Day. I'll never forget. This Valentine's Day was, we'll never view Valentine's Day the same. Uh, we were looking at Jake in the hospital he had been in for two and a half months. We were celebrating how good this boy is looking. And uh, um, the doctors, to our delight, said he's doubled his birth weight. His lungs are healthy. He's ready to go home. And we said, well, we're not able to take him home. We're not legally his parents. But we said, today is the final day of the trial for the uh, this birth father. And sure enough, the judge said, I'm sorry, young man, you are unsuited. You are unready to be uh, this young boy's parent and took away parental rights. And that same Valentine's Day, the birth mom to our shock signed over rights and we became Jake's legal parents and found ourselves in our little car driving back to Chicago going, wow. (laughs) Bible talks about being an overcomer. An overcomer is someone who faces intense hardship and yet through Christ wins the day. And the victory that Jen and I, we knew how weak we were, but God had walked us through a a just profoundly difficult season. And as a result, we enjoyed just overcoming victory. And you can't do And we will too when we face more hardship. If we know the secret to finding the Lord in prayer. So folks, run to God in prayer. It's a little counterintuitive. You know, normally when you're fighting a disaster, you you know, you got to focus on the problem. No, the counterintuitive move that Superman makes is to not run to the crisis. He turns his back on the crisis and runs to the phone booth. And that, like Jesus, should be our path as well. I know where to go. (laughs) I know what I need. I got to get down on my knees. And I need to connect with the Lord. And I need to be transformed in the connecting. Let me pray for you. uh, Folks, let's bow. Lord, as we bow and recognize your presence here, I just want to thank you for the example. We want to thank you for the example of Jesus Christ. 
In his weakness, he knew where to turn. Lord, make us people of prayer. We don't want to be those Christians in name who turn to try to face problems without you. Please, God, teach us the wisdom of turning to you. Please, God, make our instinct, our faith-based instinct to run to the place of prayer, to get on our knees and to cry out to you, seeking to make this suffering an opportunity to be closer to you than we've ever been before. And Lord, may we be people who bring you glory by living in your power through connecting to you. Thank you, Lord. Make us people of prayer. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.